The following audio is from Missio Day Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. If you'd like to find out more about us and how we strive to be a gospel-centered, city-focused church community, visit us at missiodei.org. blessing to be with you this morning. We have a lot to cover in this series, and so I'm going to dive right into it, but I want to first briefly recap what Matt taught over last week, and that was that God created us creatively to create and flourish, that all humans were created in the image of God, and we, we see that in the passage of Scripture that Matt delivered from last week. In Genesis 1, 29 it says, Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. As Matt covered with us last week in his sermon, God created the entire universe ex nihilo, Latin for out of nothing. That God created everything in this universe out of nothing. And God is the only one capable of creating anything out of nothing. Our best understanding of creating is that we arrange what God has already created into something that was not immediately accessible to us. It's, it's sort of like cooking, right? All of the ingredients are there, but it is the correct arrangement of those ingredients to make something new. It's not as if though you could claim, I created something out of nothing. No, you created something out of some things that were already in existence. Or if I picked up this guitar back here and I strummed a note, which I would not recommend me doing, but if I strummed a note, it would not be as if I created that note from nothing. No, that note has already existed. God created that note. I'm just actualizing it or making it sound at best. Or I think another example would be we all have seen kids who will draw things from their imagination and they might draw a horse with wings and a horn and say, look, I have created a new animal. But in reality, they are just creating from what God has already created, right? So there is truly nothing new under the sun. As Pastor Justin said in his sermon at Central last week, he said, we are thieves at best. We as humans are to mirror or to bear God's image by creating, but we never come close to being able to create with the beauty or the majesty or the unfettered freedom that our God can create with. He can make something out of nothing and he can create life where there was none. So this morning, we're going to be looking at the continuation of the Genesis narrative, focusing in on how God sustains us in our work. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and flip that open to Genesis chapter 2, or if it's on your phone, go ahead and load it up to Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 7 through 9 and 15, then I'm going to pray. And then we're going to dive into our text for this morning. But if you're a type A personality and you like knowing kind of where we're going with this, I will say the way that we're going to structure our morning is we're going to take a step back and we're going to look at the whole forest. And then we're going to step in and we're going to look at the individual trees. So we're going to look at the big picture and then we're going to step in and we're going to look at how that big picture should affect our everyday life. So Genesis 2, starting out in verse 7, says this. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust 
from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this opportunity to bring your word. God, I pray that if I say anything contrary or apart from your holy and inspired word, that God, it would be quickly forgotten. But God, that your word would convict us and shape us more into the likeness of your son, Christ. So God, I pray that you take this message and you bring it to us and by your spirit, you shape us and mold us more into your likeness, God. We trust that you will do this. We love you and we thank you for your son and it's in his name that I pray, amen. First thing that I want you guys to write down this morning, if you're taking notes on your app or if you're doing it old school in your journal, go ahead and write this down. God created and commanded us to work. God created and commanded us to work. We see this clearly in Genesis 2, 5, and 15. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work on the ground. So God creates all of creation and he he realizes there's no man to work this creation. So we see in Genesis 2, 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. I want us to recognize something straight out of the gate, and that is we are in this narrative pre-sin and pre-fall of man. So anyone who says work is a product of sin does not have a good theology of work. Before sin entered into the world, God instilled in us to work and cultivate his creation. Uh, my wife and I, we, we sometimes vacation near Sarasota, Florida. Uh, my grandparents have a condo there, so the price is right. It's free for us to go there. And so we go there, and we are with a whole bunch of retired snowbirds for the most part, people who are there for you know, getting away from the harsh winters up north or what have you. And, and these people, they, not all of them, I don't wanna make a hasty generalization, but you're talking to some of them down by the pool, and they are in paradise, and some of them are miserable. Because they think, you know, if, if I could just get away from working, then I would be satisfied or I would be happy. And that's not how God intended us to be or wired us to be. So if you're talking to someone and they say, I just, I just wish that I could sit on a beach all day with a drink in my hand, that would not satisfy them. Because that's not how God created us. He didn't create us to hit a certain age and then coast. God created us and wired us to work. And what do I mean by work? That's an appropriate logical question. Clearly what Adam was commanded to do was to cultivate the land. He was called to produce something out of this garden that God had entrusted to him, though many no longer physically make something with work such as farming or carpentry in our information age, it can be harder to see the tangible results of what we are making or working or cultivating. But 
All of the effort and pursuit is either to make something better for someone else or to make one's own life more comfortable. So even if you're working as an Amazon box truck loader, you are providing a way for someone else to receive something while also making money to support yourself and your family. So Adam was called to cultivate and work and likewise, we are called to work and cultivate where God has placed us in his sovereignty. Adam was charged with working the land that God had called good and keeping it. Second thing that I need us to see this morning in this text is, and write this down, God provided partnership for work. In Genesis, it says, then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds and to the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he took one of the ribs and closed its place with flesh and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The first thing that God saw in his creation that was not good was that man was alone in his task that God had set before him. Therefore, God created Adam a helper or partner to sustain this good creation that God had given to his people. Genesis 1 is clear of that relational aspect of our sustaining his creation God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over all the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Do you see the partnership there? The connection that God then gave man and woman two things here. He gave them dominion over all of creation, over everything on it. And he also gave them a partnership in tandem to work on this task of keeping and cultivating the land that he had given them. So Adam was commanded to keep and cultivate and Eve was commanded to help Adam in that work of keeping and cultivating. But sin, we know, and we will talk much more in depth about next week, entered into the creation. And when sin entered into the creation, it wasn't as if just a piece of creation was broken. No, it was like if you hit a glass pane with a hammer. No, all of creation was shattered by sin. And we see this in Romans 8, starting in verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. What that means is that even the things that we find the most beautiful in creation, so even the, the ocean or a beautiful sunrise or sunset is not as beautiful as God intended it to be before sin entered into creation. All of creation has fallen. C.S. Lewis says, if you don't believe that all of creation has fallen, someone explain mosquitoes. That's a bit of a paraphrase, but that's close to what he says. 
All of creation has fallen because of sin, and this affected our work and our attitude towards it. Genesis 3 tells us that God tells Adam and Eve, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground from which you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. So because of our sin nature, we are not naturally given to cultivating or working for the glory of the Lord, which is what God intended us to do in Genesis 2.15. And our partnership in sustaining God's creation was also damaged because of sin, because our vertical relationship with God was severed. Our horizontal relationship with others was also damaged. So because of sin, we have negative sinful tendencies towards work. And to make a bit of a hasty generalization here, I wanna talk about two categories that we can find ourselves being in about our work. And that is we can become obsessed with our work, workaholics, or we can become slothful or lazy. And I feel like there's a ton of in-between categories or seasons of somewhere in between, but I don't, I don't feel the need to label all of those. I'll allow you and the Holy Spirit to do the hard work of placing yourself where you find yourself on that paradigm. But both, both of these tendencies are devastating to what God has called us to and created us for. Becoming obsessed with our work can lead us to inflate our pride or to place our identity in what we do rather than whose we are. This can lead to disregarding family or those we love or placing our identity in something we do will ultimately fail us. So if you're a business leader and the market tanks, what are you left with if that's what your identity was in? And likewise, slothfulness can come from a place of pride, thinking we are too good to work or a failure to recognize that God has gifted us each with varying gifts according to his grace. Proverbs speaks directly to why slothfulness is destructive. In Proverbs 6, it says, go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Our natural sinful tendencies lead us to have a wrong view of work as either who we are or as something to be avoided. And so where does that leave us in the grind of our day to day? Or to ask the question another way, what sustains you in your work? Well, our society would give us a few different answers and I think most of these answers are really just based out of secular humanism. So you'll hear things like in order to be successful or sustained, you just need to work really hard while you're young and that's gonna really pay off for you when you're older. But doing a quick Amazon book search and you'll find that in the last few years there have been 5,000 books over burnout that have been released. Because we were created to work but we were also created to Sabbath or rest. 
or the other end of the spectrum, our culture has started listening to self-help gurus or consuming books about how to do more or be more. But depending on which search is correct or which information is correct, the self-help industry in 2017 either made 9.9 or $11 billion. It just kind of depends on which source you go with. But a quick Amazon search for self-help books will quickly reveal there are 80,000 books that are proclaimed to be self-help books on Amazon. So you have plenty to choose from. But as it turns out, just trying to be a better version of your current self will not sustain you either. That's why when we preach, we should never give sermons like, here are seven steps to be happy. Because if you hear those and, and you do those seven steps and you're still not satisfied, how much more broken are you at that point? You're like, ah, am I like a 10 step to happiness kind of guy? Like wh where are you at in that? And so that's never what we are trying to do. The reason that the self-help industry keeps growing is because we need more help than ourselves can give. And so the third thing we need to write down for this morning God did not leave us in our brokenness or fallen state. Don't write that down. But stepped into his creation, taking on flesh and frail humanity to redeem his people and to reclaim his creation. Third thing to write down this morning, Christ is redeeming and reconciling his creation. Christ is redeeming and reconciling his creation. Colossians 1 tells us that. It says in verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation. And so how do we as Christians help sustain the creation and bring glory to God as was intended by God in his command to keep and cultivate in Genesis 2. We are only able to do this because of the peace made by the cross and Christ's blood. We are only able to fulfill the image God intended us to bear when we are surrounding or surrendering ourselves rather to the one to whom all things were created for and by. He is the one that sustains us. He is holding all things together and is reconciling and redeeming all things according to his will. Hebrews 1.3 says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So we are then in this tension of the already and the not yet. In this tension with Christ making all things new and the struggle of the everyday work that is in front of each of us. And so how is Christ sustaining us in these things? 
Three practical points of application that I want us to dive into from this text this morning. That was the forest, that was the big picture. Now we're gonna step into the forest, look at these individual trees in it. First is a distinction of primary and secondary vocation helps sustain us in our work. A distinction of primary and secondary vocation helps sustain us in our work. The Westminster Shorter Catechism asks the famous question, what is the chief end of man? And the answer, most of you probably know, could recite it back together, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is our primary vocation as believers, that we give God all the glory while enjoying him forever. In other words, using the words of Christ, when, when he called his disciples, he simply said, follow me. Jesus actually says this around 20 times in the New Testament throughout the Gospels to his disciples. But you notice that when he says, follow me, he doesn't say, follow me, and then we're gonna go do A and then B and then C and then finally we're gonna wind up here. No, he just simply says, follow me. That our primary vocation to glorify God while enjoying him forever by following Jesus. But because of sin, we cannot follow Jesus unless he calls to us. It is not our sinful human nature to desire to give glory to God or to follow after Jesus. God must do that work in our life that causes us to truly see that Jesus, that Jesus is who he says he is and to follow after him. Our primary vocation then informs our secondary vocation, which is everything that we do while following after Jesus which includes our job, raising our families, our hobbies, our everyday life, or as Paul remarks in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. And that really is the point, isn't it? Recognizing that everything we are doing because of the work of Christ can now be done for what God created us for, which is to bring him glory. Paul demonstrates this by making tents in Corinth, we find in Acts. The apostle Paul, while living in Corinth, made tents, and I think he did this for multiple reasons. One, it helped him support his ministry of preaching the good news to the Gentiles, but it also allowed him to have access to people that he may not have had access to prior. And I bet Paul made incredible tents because he knew that he wasn't making tents just for the people. He was making tents unto the Lord, that he was working to give God glory. And so I don't know where each of you works. I think it's one of the hardest things about stepping into a congregation you don't know as well as you don't, you don't know how to properly exegete the people. But whether you're a school teacher or you're a business leader or in my case right now, I am working as an administrative assistant at a large company in downtown Cincinnati and I go to work every day on the bus and I smile and I do faxes and I send emails and I do Excel sheets. But I know that the reason I am there is to serve the people that God has placed me there to serve. And so I'm going to do a good job as an administrative assistant, not because I think I'm good at it, I am not, but because I know that I'm, I'm doing it for the glory of the Lord. So I'm gonna smile and I'm gonna be kind and I'm gonna apologize when I misfax something and I'm gonna do it for the glory of the Lord. We get out of order as believers when we mistakenly allow our secondary vocation to become our identity rather than our actual identity as a child of God. 
So another application point that I want you to write down this morning is this, a kingdom-focused eternal perspective sustains us in our work. In 1 Peter, we see in the beginning of his letter that he starts his letter in 1 Peter by saying, to the elect exiles who are in dispersia. The thing is, though, is that the, the people, the churches that Peter was writing to weren't actually in a physical exile. They were just first century Christians that were being persecuted where they had always lived. But the point that Peter, I believe, is trying to make is that they were not spiritually home yet. That they were living in this world as sojourners, being persecuted. But in the meantime, he wants them to focus on the eternal perspective. So he says this in 1 Peter 1, 3, says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you are being grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than the gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls." Peter's begging them, to, don't just focus on the here and now. Focus on the living hope that we have through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, that we have an eternal purpose in what we're doing here. So our reliance on the promises of God should fuel our desire to see our work, our lives, as something so much more than just the nine to five. No, we have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that truth and hope should permeate everything else that we think and do. It is this promise that sustains us. And I, I was thinking as I was preparing this this week, I was thinking back on the story of Joseph in Genesis. And I don't know how familiar you are with the story of Joseph in Genesis, but in Genesis, Joseph comes to his brothers and does a very unbrotherly thing. He's like, you guys are not gonna believe this, but last night I had a dream. And in that dream, all of you all were bowing down and worshiping me. And so his brothers are like, let's kill him. And then they decide, let's not kill him. Let's just sell him into slavery into Egypt. And so that's what they do. They sell him into slavery in Egypt. But what his brothers meant for evil, God actually meant for good. We see in the, in the later chapters of Genesis. So he's, he's sold into slavery in Egypt. And Joseph winds up in one of the most powerful men in Egypt's house and he rises to, to power there. And then this man's wife, Potiphar's wife, uh, wants to try to seduce Joseph. And Joseph, I think, showing us that he, he only had an audience of one and that was God, runs away from Potiphar's wife saying, what would, why would I do this not only to Potiphar, but why would I do this before God? And so he flees from her and she grabs a piece of his garment and accuses him, and so he winds up in prison in Egypt. But then he interprets one of Pharaoh's dreams and is brought into Pharaoh's house and is one of the most powerful men in Egypt. Second only to Pharaoh, the Bible says. And his brothers come because there's gonna be a famine in the land, and his brothers come to Joseph 
And in Genesis 45, seven, it says, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and the Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. He's, he's explaining to his brothers, actually, you didn't send me here. God sent me here because God had a plan. See, all the way back in Genesis 15, God makes a promise to Abraham, and Joseph would have known this promise, that God would have a people through Abraham. And so Joseph is able to see himself in God's sovereign design and story. And he says, actually, you didn't send me here. God sent me here to make a way for his people. So that we see at the end of Genesis in the beginning of Exodus that God's people were in Egypt safe from the famine, had survived so that Moses could lead them out that they might become Israel. But there's one beautiful thing here that I do not, I do not want us to miss out of the story of Joseph's life. We know so much about the first 56 years of Joseph's life. But then the, the other 54 years of Joseph's life, this is the sentence we get in Genesis chapter 50. It says, so Joseph remained in Egypt. He and his father's house, Joseph lived 110 years. We see all of God's sovereign design and plan in placing Joseph in this place in Egypt, first 56 years, and then the last 54 years of his life, we get, and Joseph remained in Egypt. And you know what sustained him? To keep working and doing what God had called him to do, even though we don't know any of that, even we don't see it, is that he knew God had a sovereign plan and purpose to bring his people out of Egypt. And Joseph saw his role in that, which was to remain faithfully doing what God had called him to do in the place where he had planted him. And we don't even hear the rest of that story, but we see the fruit of it in Exodus. Last thing to write down this morning, last practical point of application. God has sovereignly placed you and sustains you in your work. God has sovereignly placed you and sustains you in your work. Genesis two, verse seven. Then the Lord God formed the man out of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. Something that we think about often as believers and acknowledge often is that we were created by God, that he literally breathed life into each of us. Psalm 139 tells us, that before any of our first days, he had formed us fearfully and wonderfully. We hear that so much, we put it on coffee cups, we put it everywhere. And that really fits our cultural motif of I'm unique, I'm individual. However, do you ever stop and consider that that is true of every single person in this room and every single person that you have ever met? That God created each and every single person on this earth fearfully and wonderfully. He created them. And this is a big deal for so many reasons. Human dignity, racial reconciliation for starters. But also consider that every single person that you have ever talked to has an eternal soul. See that word for creature in Hebrew where it says that Adam became a living creature. That word creature is nafesh in Hebrew which is often translated as soul. So Man became living and with a soul. And this should impact deeply 
the way that we think about those that we are around on a regular basis. As C.S. Lewis once wrote in his book, The Weight of Glory, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. No, we must play, but our merriment must be of the kind that is in fact the merriest kind, which exists between people who have from the outset taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. And our charity must be real and costly love with deep feeling for our sins in spite of which we love the sinner. No mere tolerance or indulgence which parodies love as flippancy parodies merriment. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Do you consider this often? That your neighbors, the people that you work with, the people that check you out at grocery stores, your baristas, gas stations, they all have an eternal destination. That they will either spend eternity in heaven or hell. And I want us to see in Genesis 2.8, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. He, he placed the man in the garden that he had formed. And I wanna ask the question, where has God placed you? In his sovereignty, he has placed you there with purpose and intention that you may live out your primary and secondary vocation there to be a believer and follower of Jesus while raising a family and establishing relationships with those in your community or sphere to serve the church, his bride, the focal point of his redeeming work on this earth. God has planted you where you are and he'll sustain you in that. We may not always understand why God has us where he does, but take heart knowing that he knows why he's placed you there and that his plan is perfect. When I was uh, first year out of college, I started working at my prior church. I was the college and young adult pastor, not something that was full-time initially. And so I started teaching there. I was I was part-time in ministry, which meant that I was working 40 hours a week towards the ministry, but I was only getting paid for like 15 hours a week. And so I was living with another pastor and I had met my wife, Alicia, in school. And I really wanted to propose and the 15 hours a week just wasn't bolstering that timeline any of when I could buy her a ring and propose to my wife. And so I decided, you know, I'm in seminary full-time and I'm working full-time, but I'm gonna pick up another job because I just need the income. So I, I went over to FedEx and I became a box truck loader at FedEx. And it was the most unhealthy time in my life because I was working from 2 a.m. until about 8 or 8.30 a.m. five days a week, going to school full time and then working at the church as a zombie when I wasn't asleep. Um, it was actually very counterintuitive because I spent so little time with my wife during those over six months. However, it was in those six months that six month period that I would wake up every morning, not really understanding why God had me where he had me at that time. But what I did know is that God placed me in trucks, loading boxes with these men that I would have had no other access to their life otherwise. And I was stuck in a truck with them for six hours at a time, just loading boxes. So you know, the gospel was gonna come up at some point. 
It's not like we had anything else to do at four in the morning. We were going to talk, and if we talked long enough, we were eventually going to talk about the gospel. And there was a guy there that I happened to work with the last three or four months that I was there, and he was a much bigger guy, which is probably why I chose to load boxes with him. He was huge and in ROTC and was a rugby player, and I was like, I'm in that guy's truck because that'll be easier. And so I was in this truck with him, and we were talking about everything. We talked about his life, we talked about his girlfriend at the time, we talked about his dreams and his aspirations. And then unfortunately, you know, we, we got close, but unfortunately my time at FedEx came to an end and I say unfortunately, I don't mean that. But my time at FedEx came to an end and I left and I had enough money to propose to my wife, so like, you know, mission accomplished. And I didn't think much about it. Then back in January, this past January, I got this message from my friend that I loaded trucks, you know, loaded trucks with. He said, hey man, I hope you're doing well. This is random, but I just wanted to say thanks. I just got a promotion at UK Hospital in the Cancer Research Development Department. We found out we're having a daughter, and it's crazy to think that four years ago, I was loading trucks at FedEx. I was living wild and not living right, but now I'm married in grad school, having a daughter, I have a good job, and I can pinpoint the upward trend to a specific time frame. I believe you were meant to load trucks with me. I don't think I would have ever really gotten back into church if it hadn't been for you. Us just talking and hanging out got me going back to church, and now I'm leading a seventh grade group of boys at Southland Christian Church, brave and just feeling very blessed. Anyways, I know it's cheesy, but I just felt I had to tell you thanks. God used you to help point me back in the right direction. And I don't think either one of us knew it at the time, but looking back, it's very clear to me that that's what got me back into church. And ever since then, my life has been on an upward trend. God sovereignly places us, and we need to we need to take note of those unique opportunities we have to serve where he has placed us to keep and cultivate what he has given to us. And the story of the Bible starts with the command to keep and cultivate in a garden and ends in revelation with a city, the end of cultivation that God himself has built. He graciously allows us to partner with him in the work of the gospel on this earth. He sustains us and keeps us and has placed us where he wants us with gifts and abilities to be used for his glory. He sustains us and we work for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that in your sovereignty you have placed us and you have commanded us to, to keep and to cultivate and to work and God, we know that it is only by your grace and your sustaining mercy and love that we are able to do that. And so God, help us to see the importance and the eternal impact of the work that we do day to day. May your gospel permeate each of our actions and interactions with those that you have created around us. And God, ultimately, may you receive all the glory for all that you are doing still on this earth. Lord, allow us to partner with you in that 
and may your spirit continually transform us from one degree of glory to another more into your image. Lord, we love you. We, we praise you that you are so sovereign and so good to us. It's in your heavenly name we pray, God. Amen.